Good morning, everyone. Come on. That's not inspiring to me, guys. Good morning, everyone. Much, much better. You got to remember, I'm from a tradition where we speak a little more in the pew. All right, this is not just me up here. This is you guys communicating. This is all of us hearing from God and allowing Him to speak to us, but allowing us to speak back to Him. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 32 to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 9, verse 32 to the end of the chapter. Today we have ice. Last week we had snow. I want to talk about another weather pattern that probably not too many of us have actually been through, but we actually are through all the time. Very much, we often live life in a fog. How many of you have ever actually like really like driven into like a serious, like I can't see five feet in front of my face fog? It's pretty crazy, right? Like I remember one time coming back from, uh, I can't remember, I was a kid, my dad was driving and we, were, we decided, you know, typical dad fashion, let's do a shortcut. Take a shortcut through these roads that actually ended up being all flooded, but we can't see five feet in front of our face because the fog is so thick. And how life is very much like that. We get uh, bogged down, we get enveloped, we get entrapped. And for many of us, maybe this is the past year, maybe the past many years, your life has been lived in a fog. Maybe you've just starting to experience it, or maybe you've been stuck for years or months or days. I like how one author, Katie Marquette, describes this. She says, we walk through this life, a life of immense meaning in a fog. We get bogged down by the mundane, by the routines of our lives. All of us at one time or another have been caught in a fog. It wraps itself around you and closes you within. You cannot see out. Life becomes this entrapping fog. So the question then becomes, how do we escape the fog? How do we cut through the fog? How do we see to the other side? What I want to argue for today is that the way we cut through the fog is to recover a sense of wonder. How do you cut through the fog of life? See the wonder of life. Marquette continues. She says, Our world is wonderful, absolutely bursting with the sacred and all inspiring beauty of creation. If only we slow down to look for it. And that we'll see is often our problem. There is plenty to see, but we're too busy, stuck in the fog, to actually look and behold the wonder of it all. So Marquette brings us to G.K. Chesterton, probably one of his most famous quotes. He says this, The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. Let me read that again. The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. What is he saying? The world is extraordinary. It is charged with significance, but we have forgotten how to see it. 
Brothers and sisters, this morning I want, if by the power of God's Word, to begin to recover a sense of that wonder. This is what Acts 9 does for us. It points us to the wonder and the power of resurrection. It puts on full display the glory, the power, and the might of our risen Christ. And then it tells us, beloved, push pause. Push pause. Stop. See this wonder. Behold this wonder. Consider this wonder. And then it doesn't just say stop. It challenges us in all, in light of this wonder, in light of this power, repent of your lack of wonder. And with faith, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ anew. This morning, I want us to slow down enough to hopefully begin to see how we can at least start to recover this sense of wonder. Acts 9, 32 to the end of the chapter, verse 43, gives a picture of two miracles. Two miracles that take place in two different cities, but all have the same message. That message is this. There is wonder and there is power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this message, this wonderful, powerful message demands a response. That response is to repent and to believe. When we are confronted with the living Christ, we must never leave unchanged. For Jesus is alive. There is power in His resurrection. There is wonder in His resurrection. We must repent and believe. So this morning, I want us to focus on three things. The first one is that Jesus heals. He takes a paralyzed man and powerfully makes him walk again. Secondly, Jesus resurrects. Even more significantly, He takes a dead woman and brings her back to life. His resurrection power on full display. And her third point we're going to turn to action. See, witnessing Jesus' power demands a response. And that response is to turn and believe. This is our path forward this morning. If you will, follow along with Acts 9, 32 to the end of the chapter. Now as Peter went here and there, Among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come with us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. 
But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise! And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So before we get to the first point of Jesus' healing, before we get to the first miracle, I want us to go back and set the stage. Verse 31, for context. If I can find it. (laughs) So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Here we have this little glimpse of what church should be. Here in this one verse, we have a remarkable, magnificent, wonderful picture of Christ's church being sanctified and built up throughout the region of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. The church had peace. This new family is being built up together in Christ. They are walking in the fear of the Lord. They're experiencing the comforting promise of the Holy Spirit. And they multiplied. They experienced true biblical growth. But don't forget they just went through the fire. They were a persecuted people. And once again, they would become a persecuted people. But for this brief moment in time that had peace and the church grew. Have you ever considered why there was peace at this point? See, the Lord Jesus Christ confronted a man on the road to Damascus. A man who is ravaging the church. A man who is persecuting the church. A man whose full intent was to destroy this infant church. And Jesus Christ comes to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul is transformed. The persecutor turned into the proclaimer And now, there was peace. And this peace brings growth. I would even go as far as to say, the persecution they faced laid the foundation for their growth. The church was built up. New believers walking in the fear of the Lord. There was a deep awareness and wonder of God's majesty, His holiness and glory. Wonder filled their midst. When it came clear, a perspective on the travesty of sin and repentance followed and the Lord added to His people and the people of God multiplied. Man, I really hope this picture stirs you. If it leaves you feeling indifferent, 
This church picture should stir your heart. You can't just read this remarkable verse and shrug your shoulders to remain indifferent at what the beauty of the church should be with hope of what the church could be. Brothers and sisters, our prayer should be marked for God. Do this again. Send your Spirit upon us in such a way so that we walk in the fear of the Lord, so that we find comfort in your Spirit's presence. Spirit of God, become our eternal comfort. God, in your mercy and grace, multiply us. Spiritually and numerically. My prayer for us is that God would have His way with us. Whatever it takes, O Lord. This peace brings freedom of of movement. Have you ever thought about that? When there is peace, you can freely move around. When there is persecution and war, you're often stuck. So Peter begins moving. He begins moving north up towards the, along the Mediterranean coast. He is, with all the disciples, fulfilling Matthew 28. He's going forth into all the nations. He's moving outward from Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He is fulfilling what God had commanded him to do. So we come to Lydda. The first point, we see Jesus healing. So Peter, after traveling about 22 miles northwest from Jerusalem, he pauses in Lydda. And I love how Luke describes it. Look at verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, this is both a statement of purpose and a statement of randomness. He purposefully goes to the disciples, but the here and the there is kind of like almost sounds random in a sense. It's like a picture of intentional but organic growth. God is building his church intentionally but organically. Peter went where the disciples were and he continues purposely to build them up. So wherever disciples pop up, Peter goes to minister to them. And here in Lydda, Peter connects with the saints and our first miracle takes place. He finds a paralyzed man who had been bedridden for eight years. Now Luke doesn't tell us why he's paralyzed. That wasn't really important to his message. But he does focus on the length of that paralysis. Eight long years in the fog in the brokenness. Peter comes to him in verse 34. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And what happens? Immediately, immediately he rose. God miraculously and mysteriously intervenes. It was immediate, bedridden for eight years, and all of a sudden, he's able to stand up and walk. And I love what Peter commands him to do. Make your bed. You know why? For eight years, he could not make his bed. And now, for the first time, he's able to get up and make his bed. There's a finality to that. Make your bed. Why? Because you are risen to a newness of life. You have been healed. Jesus has healed you. 
This man could now walk, and as he walks, he becomes a walking testimony to the wonder and the power of Christ's resurrection. What boldness and confidence and trust that Peter had. I don't know if if you're like me, but my small faith looks at this and wonders. How did Peter know that this guy was the guy he's supposed to raise? I'm sure he encountered many others who were lame and needing healing. But this one was the one. Why this man, though? Why not others? We know that Peter has done this before. Back in Acts 3, we have the story of Peter and John healing a lame beggar. Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And again there too, immediately the man stood up. His legs strengthened and he began leaping and praising God. He's not just like, oh, thank you, Jesus. He's leaping and praising God. Sometimes I wonder if we fail to see just how much sin we're actually saved from because we don't leap and praise God enough, myself included. He was filled with wonder and amazement at what Christ has done, and he could do nothing but leap and praise God. I want to take a slight detour to answer this que- ask this question. Should we expect such miraculous healings and resurrections as the norm? So, should I be able to go up to a paralytic and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk? Well, let me answer it this way. Eh, kind of no. But, I'll caveat that. This is not the norm. This happened, these miracles happened, and again, this is a debated point, so some may disagree with me here. But these miracles that we witness unfolding in Acts are happening for a specific purpose. Here's the purpose. Even just like the signs and wonders that Jesus committed, they're happening for this purpose. They're there to confirm both the message and the messenger. So when Peter heals, that confirms him as God's chosen apostle. That confirms his message as his, the gospel proclamation. That is testifying, that is giving proof to the fact that he is sent from God and the words he proclaims are from God. Now scripture is complete. It is fulfilled. It is final. We no longer need such confirming miracles. Scripture is what we call self-attesting. It proves itself. The word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. You don't need to defend scripture. Allow scripture to defend itself. It is powerful enough. It is great enough and mighty enough. So God's word confirms to us that it is the very word of God. We no longer need such miracles to confirm for us the message and the messengers. Scripture is complete. The word we have today is all we need for a life of godliness. But at the same time, let me say this. I am cautious, much more cautious than I used to be, about putting God in a box. To flat out say God never heals and God never maybe even resurrects today? I can't say that. Is Scripture complete? Yes. 
Is Scripture perfect? Yes. Is Scripture sufficient and full of authority, power, wonder, and glory, and might, and able to defend itself? Yes. Does God still heal? Yes. Does God still raise from the dead? He could. I have not heard of any. I'm always a skeptic. But he could, and he does. He is able, and let me tell you this, if he's not necessarily doing it now, he's going to do it in the future. So God does it. My concern is not put him in a box. I don't think they're the norm, at least not here in our context. They are, those healings and miracles are far more normal overseas and other places. All right, enough of that detour. The second point is that Jesus resurrects. Peter stays in Lydda for a bit. He's there to encourage, to strengthen the challenge, to build up the new disciples. And news of Aeneas' healing spreads. So Joppa is about 11 miles northwest of Lydda. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean. In Joppa, there is a disciple named Tabitha who becomes ill and dies. And this loss, they feel, is tremendous. Luke makes the point, she was full of good works and acts of charity. Her life made a deep impact. It was transformed by Christ and then used by Christ to bring about and transform the lives of countless others. That's what I talked about last week. God uses people to transform other people. And now the loss of Tabitha is great. There's deep mourning, deep sorrow, deep sadness. But the disciples there heard of a miracle. See, there's this man, Aeneas, 11 miles south, who is now walking. I don't know, and I kind of wonder, what were they thinking? Hey, let's go get Peter, and he will heal her and bring her to, new li- bring her to life, or we'll just go get Peter and maybe he can pray for us. And see what happens. Who knows? We kind of alluded to the fact that maybe giving them the benefit of the doubt, they had enough faith to say that if he, this God, is able to make a man bedridden walk, he is surely able to make a dead woman rise again. That is nothing for the God that we worship. So they send for Peter. Peter comes. He's immediately greeted by intense weeping and sorrow. They, in that moment, the disciples there, their lives are in a fog, completely uprooted. And I love the, how Luke takes the time to give us these little details. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter is not just greeted by intense weeping and sorrow, he is also greeted by countless marks of Tabitha's Christ-like love. So as they're weeping, the widows and disciples are showing off, this is what Tabitha's done. This is what she has done. This woman clearly loved others and demonstrated that love in the ordinary of every day. Christ transformed her and used her to transform the lives of others and that left a huge hole when she died. Peter, again, I'm wondering, does he know at this point is he fully confident? Does he know what he's about ready to do? I don't know. But he kicks everyone out. 
go out, go mourn somewhere else. This is no, I mean, I almost wonder, this is no longer a place of mourning. He gets on his knees before this lifeless, dead body. And Luke goes to details to tell us she is dead. They washed her body. She was prepared for burial. And Peter prays. And with boldness, with power and wonder, maybe it was spoken quietly. I tend to think, maybe because I'm louder, I tend to think maybe it was spoken loudly. I feel like these things you can't just say, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, arise! Of course, you don't need a louder voice to, it's the power of God, it's not the level of voice. But Tabitha rose. Were two words full of power and grace and wonder, two words built upon the foundation of Jesus' resurrection, and Tabitha, who was once dead, opens her eyes. Tabitha, who was once dead, sat up. Tabitha, who was once dead, is brought back to life, and Peter holds out his hand and picks her up and brings her forth to those who are mourning and says, cease your mourning. She is alive. I'm assuming he said that. I think he would say that. Her just getting up and walking out would be enough. Cease your mourning. She is alive. The point, there is power. Power. Wonder-working power in the blood of the Christ, and in His resurrection. See, Jesus Christ, Paul says, is the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? He rose again, and that is a promise that all of His people will one day rise again. Colossians 1.18, going back to 17, speaks of Jesus, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body of the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. Making peace by the blood of the cross. That is our Christ. That is your Jesus. That is my Jesus. The firstborn from the dead. Because He is alive, we now live. The resurrection and the life. Death is defeated, vanquished forever. So Paul is able to powerfully say, death swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lazarus, Jesus himself, and now Tabitha, they are all promises and foretastes. They promise us that all who are in Christ will one day rise again to new life in Christ. And they are foretastes 
of what that resurrection, eternal life will look like. Our faith is not futile. Our faith is not in vain. Why? Because Jesus is alive. So that fog that we live in can be cut away because for the believer in Jesus Christ, every day is Easter Sunday. Every day. Every day is full of wonder and hope because Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. The resurrection of Christ cuts through the fog of life The resurrection of Christ shows that all of our frustration, suffering, worries, heartbreaks are but a momentary blip on the radar that will be far outweighed by our resurrected selves spending all of eternity with our resurrected Savior. So where does this leave us? What does this passage, Jesus' resurrection power, demand of us? Repentance and belief. The end of both stories, the healing of Aeneas and the resurrection of Tabith, both culminate in people turning and believing in the Lord. Look back to verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, saw the healed Aeneas walking around, and they turned to the Lord. They witnessed the wonder and the power of God, and they believed. Let's skip up to verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, Tabitha is alive. And many believed in the Lord. Aeneas and Tabitha became walking testaments to the wonder and the power of Christ's resurrection. And many believed and turned, repented, and had faith. So what is the end of God's resurrection power? What is it for us? The end is for us to repent and for us to have faith. All who are confronted by this wonder and power of Christ's resurrection are compelled to turn and believe. And I'm not just talking about a one and done thing. I'm talking about every day. How do you, do you want to get out of that fog of life? Do you want the wonder and power of the resurrection to cut through? Then you need to repent and believe anew. Because if there's fog there, there's no repentance. If there's fog there, there's no faith. If there's fog there, there's no wonder and power in the glory of Christ. We need those reminders. So yes, there's a first time where we see the depth of our sin and turn to Christ in repentance and believe in Him. But that better not be the last time. Your life in my life, in fact, I'd argue the marks of the Christian life are found in repentance and faith. Turning and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ when life wraps us in a fog, when we fail to see the wonder of God and the power of His resurrection, we need the good news of the Gospel. 
We need to repent of our sin. And we need to believe in the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the wonderful, powerful resurrection of our Jesus Christ. Christ. We need to remind ourselves once again every single day that Jesus is alive. We need this good news to burn away the fog and to renew in our hearts and minds that sense of wonder and joy and hope that many of us first had when we believed in Christ. We will not perish for lack of wonders but we are perishing for a lack of wonder. We fail to see all the beauty, the wonder, the glory, and the majesty that Christ sets before us. A feast of His gospel. A feast of His forgiving, powerful blood. A feast of His perfect life. A feast of His sacrificial death. And the feast of His resurrection power. We need to come to the feast to repent of our sins, to believe again. Jesus is there waiting. He stands at the door and knocks. That's not really for unbelievers. That's for the church. Jesus is there knocking for you and for me. I am holding out a feast. I am holding out a world of wonders. Open your eyes. Repent of your blindness. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of all of this and believe that I am the resurrection and the life. That I am the power and the glory. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that Jesus' resurrection power would cut through the fog of our lives and bring us into a deeper and renewed sense of awe and wonder this morning. Father, remove the scales from our eyes. Father, bring us out of the fog. Father, renew our hearts and minds. Father, allow the power of Your Word, the power of Your resurrection to cut through the fog. Help us to see the wonder of Your resurrection. Help us to know the power of your resurrection. Help us to see the wonder all of around us. We so often fail to slow down to see it. And we're perishing because of it. Father, we repent. We confess our sins. To, we confess that we have not loved you as we have ought. We confess that we have not seen the wonder and power of your resurrection as we should. Help us this morning to behold with a new sense of wonder, to grasp the new sense of Your power. Help us to repent for our woeful unbelief. Help us to turn to You in repentance and faith. Give us that blessed assurance in knowing that if we confess our sins, You, Jesus, are faithful and just because of the wonder and power of Your resurrection. You, cleanse us from all of our sins. You cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Jesus, your resurrection has such great power. May we wonder in it every day. Help us to become a people full of wonder. 
And it's in your wonderful, powerful, mighty name at the name that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ, you are our Lord. In that great name we pray. Amen.